1 John 2.15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So do not love the world or the things in the world. If we love the world as the Bible defines the world, or the things in the world, those temporary things that can become idols to us, if we love the world, then we don't know how much God loves us if we fall in love with the world. And if we don't know how much God loves us, then we are not able to love God. So don't love the world or the things in the world. In Second Chronicles, it talks about a king named Rehoboam. And it says in Second Chronicles 12.1, I'll just read it. It says, Now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. So this king leaves the Lord, gets involved in idolatry, brings all of Israel with him. And as a result, this king of Egypt was able to attack them and try to take over. Uh, the Lord being merciful bringing them back, doing whatever was necessary to bring them back to him. But it says, if you read on, it says the Lord sent a prophet to them, to King Rehoboam and the people, and he told them why this was happening. You know, this is happening because you've fallen in love with this world around you. You've been involved in idolatry. You're doing what the people around you were doing. And he told them why it was happening. And then it says that they humbled themselves before the Lord. They repented. They came back to the Lord. They humbled themselves before him, and he delivered them. The king of Egypt couldn't take them over, couldn't conquer them. But it says, nevertheless, they will be his servants, that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. You know, when a child of God drifts from the Lord and is lured by this world, when we become enamored with the world or involved, too involved in, in worldly things, uh, the Lord brings us back. The love of God will never fail, a child of God. But if the temporary things of this world become our gods, we will learn to distinguish between his service from the kingdom of the world. God will show us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Second Corinthians, Paul said, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The world. You know, when it speaks of the world, it's not talking about nature. You know, we, we love the world in that sense, with the creation that God has made, and we love our families, and we love our friends. You know, we, we love life, you know, and we should live life to the fullest in obedience to God. But when the Bible speaks of the world, it speaks of those who dwell on the earth, the, those who abide on the earth, and that's all they know. Uh, they know nothing but what they, beyond what they can see or what they're able to comprehend with their minds. 
the world. And they are, it's a constant effort for them to establish the kingdom of this world. It's building a tower of Babel, like in Genesis. Uh, trying to make a utopia on earth made with human hands. That's the world. To be like gods, as Satan said to Eve in the garden. The world is any individual or institution that says the Bible is not true. And there are many who are saying that by their words, by their actions, by their worldview, uh, they're saying the Bible isn't true. That's the world. Jesus said that Satan is the ruler of this world. In John, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Spiritually, the Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world, that there is an evil, there is a presence, there is an agenda in this world. Some people don't believe that there's a spiritual world, that they think it's myths created by men to explain human existence and what we go through. Uh, some people believe there may well be a spiritual world, but it's vague and distant and uninvolved. And some people believe what the Bible says, that there is an entire unseen world accomplishing the purpose of a sovereign God, that there is a spiritual world. You know, we tell the kids in Sunday school, God wants you to fly, Satan wants you to jump off a cliff. And the danger is that Satan can make jumping off the cliff seem like flying for a moment. Um, and again, we keep telling, I think every Sunday with the kids, we, go, we keep saying this over and over and over again. Uh, what is Satan's biggest lie? And they all know it. Satan's biggest lie is the Bible isn't true. And we warn them every Sunday that they're going to be hearing that lie for the rest of their lives in many different forms. They're going to be hearing it in songs. They're going to be hearing it in entertainment, in the culture, in school. They're going to be hearing that lie for the rest of their lives, that the Bible isn't true. We need to be praying for our children. If we're not praying for our children constantly, we're in sin. Spiritual deception is way stronger than we are. The only protection is the truth revealed by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is absolute truth. There is no other. Every utterance of this world, no matter how good it sounds, no matter how it feeds us culturally, politically, or socially, no matter how much truth is in it, every utterance of this world is not the truth. The word of God is absolute truth. Absolutely. Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies. The wind of deceit we know is blowing harder than ever. The lie is growing. And that ancient book that you hold in your laps right now is our only anchor from being blown away. Jesus said in John, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw that tree, what she was doing hanging around it, I don't know, but she's hanging around that tree, she sees it and, and sees that... It, that it's good for food, that it might be satisfying. A food that could not give life, but it would deceptively take life away. 
It speaks of living on a purely physical plane. All our attention is to these bodies, or as Joe Foch always says, to these carcasses that only last for a temporary, for a short time. Our minds and hearts are focused on satisfying the needs and desires of our physical bodies. It's living within a fallen existence, lusting after those things that are inconsequential, ultimately inconsequential. And they're in opposition to the quality of eternal life that God desires us to experience. It's feeding a dead man. Genesis 6.8, or I'm sorry, Galatians 6.8 says, For he who sows to his flesh will reap of the flesh corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will reap of the Spirit everlasting life. You know, how do you sow to the flesh? It's easy. You just do what comes naturally. I, I know how to sow to the flesh. I could give a seminar on how to sow to the flesh. Uh, you do what comes naturally. Your mind is set on it. You feed it. How do you sow to the Spirit and reap everlasting life? You, you do what is given supernaturally. The word of God planted in our hearts and bearing fruit. Colossians, it says, if you were then raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. It doesn't mean that we ignore things on the earth. It doesn't mean we should strive to leave this world a better place than when we found it. We should be concerned. There are issues we should be concerned about in this life, but we don't dwell on the earth. This isn't our home. We're not earth dwellers. Uh, we live. What did I say? I told you I'd get struck by lightning. What? Man. All right. Uh, is this working? Hello. Yes. So, but we don't dwell on the earth. We live in Christ. We have a king whom we desire to serve. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. In Galatians, it says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, works of the flesh. Notice he starts off with sexual immorality. And then he goes down the list, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who reject the kingdom of God will not be given it. Galatians 5.16 says, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Those lusts of the flesh are always going to be there because we're living in this flesh. But if we're walking in the spirit, we won't fulfill them. So how do we walk in the spirit? You know, we hear that a lot. Walk in the spirit. How do we do it? You know, is, is it something that we can conjure up in and of ourselves? You know, it's, get up in the morning and, and say, today I'm going to walk in the spirit if it kills me. You know, we, it's not in and of ourselves that we can do this. It's, but if that is our desire, 
to walk in the Spirit, then we'll seek the Lord. We'll saturate our minds and hearts with the Word of God, and you find yourself walking in the Spirit. The more time we spend with Jesus, hearing his word, in prayer, in communication with him, hearing his voice, it's not something that we have to, con that we have to you know, gird our loins to do. We find ourselves walking in the Spirit because we've been with him. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Love, joy, and peace. This is what God wants us to have. Love, joy, and peace. And, you know, contrast that with the fruit that comes from the work of the flesh, which is death. In Psalms 145.19, it says, He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him, he also will hear their cry and save them. He will fulfill the desire. He gives us what we want, basically. Galatians, it says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So, <clears throat> excuse me, another thing, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. In Genesis, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. She saw it, and it looked good. It looked like it might be a good thing to uh, engage in. A beautifully wrapped package that contained a bomb. Second uh, Corinthians, it says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. You know, it's funny in Sunday school when you ask kids, you know, what does Satan look like? And some of the kids will say, oh, he's this monster, you know, with teeth and, or horns or something. And some of the kids get it. They'll say, little kid will say, he's beautiful. And you say, you know, why do you say that? And they'll say, because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be able to lie to us. And, you know, he transforms himself into an angel of light, a deception to lure people away from the eternal things that cannot be seen, lusting only after those things that a person can see and comprehend with a fallen mind. Notice it, it's lust. Lust denotes having to put forth constant effort to gain something, as opposed to what God has freely given us. And then he goes on and talks about the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In Genesis it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. She was deceived. You know, what was Adam doing during this whole time? You know, he was home in his recliner watching the game while his wife was hanging around that tree and talking to a snake. Not quite with it. She gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The pride of life. In Isaiah 14, 12, it says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. It's like... 
You know, Satan deceived Adam and Eve with this, and, and he's also deceived himself somehow, some way. The I wills, the pride of life, the deception of thinking that there's life outside or apart from God. Alleged wisdom that feeds the flesh. And one of the best way or worst ways to feed the flesh, the pride of life, is through spiritual means. Uh, join a religion where you have to do something. You know, every religion in the world has got a goal, whether it's heaven or nirvana or a higher consciousness or something. Every religion has a goal, and you have to do something to reach that goal. And when you do it, you feel good about yourself. You're pr you, 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 pride. I've, I've done it. I'm reaching this goal. You feel good about yourself. People talk about false spirituality makes a few person feel good about themselves. Self-esteem, people talk about self-esteem. Self-esteem is ingrained in us from birth. Little children, if you watch them, they are just chock full of self-esteem. Uh, people talk about low self-esteem. Well, this person does this or that or they're that way because they have low self-esteem. People diagnosed with this, it, it's just that they're not getting the affirmation that they desire. And they desire that affirmation because they're full of self-esteem. Spirituality outside of the spirit of God feeds the pride of life. You know, we don't walk around saying, oh, I'm worthless, I'm no good, I can't do anything. Uh, I'm, th that's just a f another form of pride and self-seeking. We should feel good about accomplishments and we should take pride in our work. But if spirituality doesn't overwhelm us with the goodness of Jesus, where Jesus is our righteousness, goodness, joy, and security, then it's feeding the pride of life. I remember years ago, there was a couple here who left the church, and I asked them, you know, why are you leaving? And they said, the pastor never says anything good about us. I'm thinking, what, what do you want him to say? It's, you know, I, I would rather be overwhelmed by the goodness of God because that's eternal life. Because measured by God's standards, as the Bible says, there, there is no good thing in me. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross and rise again. It says the world is passing away and the lust of it. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You know, what a great scripture that is. Heaven and earth is going to pass away. But the words of God are never going to pass away. That's why we read the word of God, because it's reality, the only reality. The eternal is reality, not the temporary. And this world in its present form is passing away. In Revelations, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. You know, even the physical world itself is going to be passing away and going to be made new. And those who are now walking in newness of life through faith in Christ are going to be living in that world, in that new world. In Revelations, it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things that passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. In Romans it says, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. He died for us, therefore we died. 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When he rose, we rose. Jesus said in the gospel, he said, because I live, you live. The Bible says, reckon yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a good scripture to quote to ourselves when we're faced with temptation. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to be alive to God through Jesus Christ. The world and its lusts are passing away. It's like, you know, don't board a ship that's got a big hole in it. Don't love this world or the things in this world. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate. So don't love this world. Come out from among them. But he who does the will of God abides forever. First Peter says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Eternal life. You know, sometimes we can hear things so often they become common. That's, you know, something we pray about the Sunday school because kids that learn, they hear things over and over and over again, and it becomes a common thing to them sometimes. You know, those words, eternal life. You know, we should just meditate on those words, what the Lord has given us. So if we do what God wants us to do, we abide forever. person who does the will of God abides forever. What does God want us to do? What is, what is God's will that we could know it and do it and abide with him forever? Doing the will of God always speaks of obedience. Paul said in Corinthians, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The will of God always has to do with obedience. In John, uh, the people came to Jesus and they said, what does God want us to do? What are the works of God? What, what is his will? What does he want us to do? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That is what God wants us to do, plain and simple. And that's basically all he wants us to do, believe in the one whom he sent. It's also the work of God that we are able to believe in the one whom he sent. It's his work, the work of God in us. The work of God isn't necessarily what we do, but it's all the time what God does. With the kids, you know, they, they hear stuff so many times over. They believe in Jesus. They hear it constantly. And, you know, how many of them really know what it means to believe in Jesus? So, you know, we tell them we have a thing up on the board it says to believe in Jesus means you believe who he is, you believe what he says, you believe what he has done, believe that he has done it for you, believe that he will love you now and forever, and now I want to obey him. You know, and basically that's what it means, basically, to believe in Jesus. Romans, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This world is passing away. It's fallen without the knowledge of God. You know, we all see and know the, the insanity that's going on around us in the world today. But there's a gift that is beyond value in these days, especially in these days that we're living in, and that's the peace of God, the peace of God. 
John Lennon wrote in a song, he said, I, I'd give you everything I got for a little peace of mind. But the peace that we're talking about isn't peace of mind. It's, as the Bible says, it's the peace that passes understanding. It's a peace that we have when we shouldn't have peace. When the circumstances around us dictate that there, we really shouldn't have peace, but we do. That's the peace of God. It's the peace that we have in the midst of adverse circumstances. It's post-election peace. John says, or in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace of God, it comes with obedience. Compromise will steal our peace. The peace of God comes in believing in the Son of God. It comes from being in the will of God, which is perfect. God's will is good, and it's perfect. It is God's will that we have that peace that passes all understanding. It says it guards our hearts and minds, that peace of God. I, you know, in these days, what a valuable gift that is to have. It's something the world does not have. And it's a witness to the world when they see that we have it when everything is going nuts, and, and the people in the world know, see that things are going crazy. But they see that we have that peace. Colossians, it says, If you were then raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Don't think, act, or be like those who refuse the truth and do not know God. We live in this world, and hopefully we are used by God to make this world a better place, but we have a permanent home in eternity. And there's only one way we can be transformed, and that's by the renewing of our mind. And there's only one way that we can renew our mind, and that's by the Word of God. Having the Word of God planted in our hearts and minds and bearing fruit for his glory. This is the will of God. You know, we ask the kids in Sunday school, what is the one thing God wants you to do? Just one thing. What is the main one thing God wants us to do? And the answer is live. You know, the, he, he just wants us to live. His will is perfect. We pray, thy will be done. We want to do God's will. You know, in the morning when I leave for work, I pray, Lord, your will be done. But as the, as the words are coming out of my mouth, I have a sneaking suspicion that I am not able to do that. Uh, that I'm not, some, you know, given certain circumstances, I'm not even able to desire that. And yet I pray it, thy will be done. It's, it's sort of like, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's not within me to, do, to will or to do the will of God. It, it's like we exist in two places. We're in Christ. But until we are fully redeemed, we're also living in these tents, in this flesh. It's like we're in two different places. Romans, Paul said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. In me, outside of Christ, in my flesh, you know, Paul said, nothing good dwells. I don't know how bad it is in, in and of myself. I, I don't know the full extent uh, or the full meaning 
of that scripture where Paul says, in me no, no good thing dwells. I don't know how bad it is. And in Christ, if I did, if I did have a full knowledge of how bad it is, I would lose hope. But in Christ, I also don't fully comprehend how good it is. Uh, we, I don't fully comprehend the height and the depth of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the good news is, how bad it is in my flesh is not the reality. The reality is how, is how good it is in Christ, the good of the one. In Romans it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I don't understand. For what I will to do, I, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. A little bit further on, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, when we fail sometimes, and, or if we get focused on how bad it is, my flesh, we can sometimes wonder, we can be overwhelmed by that, and we can sometimes wonder, you know, how can God love me? Because we're just, all, we, all we're focusing on, all we can see is how bad it is. But there are like four answers to that. How can God love me? One is in the sense that you love someone because there are qualities that are lovable in them, he doesn't love us. Uh, not in the sense that you love someone because there are qualities within them to love. You know, and we're not talking about human standards. We're talking about God's view and his standards. We've said, in my flesh, there is no good thing. There, there is nothing to love. There is nothing that God would desire. There is nothing that God would accept in and of my flesh. Uh, number two, God has loved you because God is love. That's who he is, and that's what he does. Three, he loves his son. Jesus is the only human being who ever existed that the Father loved because of who he is. He's the only human being that ever existed where there was something in him that was lovable to the Father, desirable, acceptable. And four, if you believe in the Son of God, then you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, therefore God has loved you before the foundation of the world, loves you now, and will love you forever, and that love is unconditional. Romans, Paul says, therefore, there is no, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You know, if I walk according to the flesh, get into the flesh, I sometimes feel condemned. But he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. He doesn't say if we walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. He's describing those of us who are in Christ. If we're in Christ, we're not walking according to the flesh. We are walking according to the spirit because the spirit of God lives in us and we're sealed. He's not talking about sin, sinless perfection. But what he is talking about is what Paul said in Romans, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. In Romans 8.14 it says, 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of, of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba, it's an Aramaic word, it means daddy. It's when, you know, if you go to the Mideast and you hear, see little kids yelling for their father, they'll be yelling Abba, Abba, it means daddy. You know, we cry out, Daddy, it seems weird that I could call the creator of the universe Daddy, or I could start my prayer off by Daddy. It just seems weird, but that's what God desires. That's the relationship that God desires. It's the will of God. It's not the cry of a servant, though we desire to do his will. It's not the cry of a slave, though we gladly submit to his will. It's the cry of a child, Abba, Daddy. Little children, if they have a good father, which we have, although they become increasingly aware of their propensity to do wrong, they know and rely on only one thing. Little children know only one thing, the acceptance, security, and unconditional love of their father. We cry out, Abba, Father, and children who abide in that kind of love desire to please their father to do his will. He who does the will of God abides forever. We desire it, we pray for it, and we rest in our Father's desire for us. In Philippians it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Jesus said in Luke, do not fear little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Abba, Father, do one more verse, verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour, that we are living in the last hour. You know, I don't think I need to go through the litany of events and things that are taking place that we can see where it's the last hour, like never before. And with ever increasing uh, things that are happening, events that show that God's hand is being lifted from this earth. What the world, what our nation calls social evolution is in truth suicide by deception. You know, the clock started ticking on the last hour when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. The clock started ticking. You know, where are we right now? Um, turn to, just for a moment, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin because they healed the lame man, and they were ordered not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore, and they were threatened. And they went back and told their friends, told the other believers. And in verse 24, it says, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, 
Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. I heard that we had an election a few days ago. Is that true? No, no I didn't think it was. And I also heard that there were a whole bunch of people who weren't very happy with the outcome. Is that true? You're happy? Good, good, good. Uh, this world is heading down a path with increasing speed. Uh, they said a lot of pastors uh, and the movie that you saw this morning, uh, the pastor said that this election was a turning point, and it certainly was a turning point. However, it's a turn that many people in this country did not want to make. Uh, what's happening in our culture and in our institutions, you know, it, it's not just secularism. You know, in government and in institutions, you know, I don't really have a problem with reasonable secularism. I think that's how this country was founded. But what's happening now, somebody said, is redefining reality, the path that we're going down. In verse 27, they continued to pray, and they said, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So there's some good post-election news that our God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Uh, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. He rules. In Romans, Paul said, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And everybody who stands in a pulpit and says that verse emphasizes that word all. All things work together for good. If, if this country somehow turns around and repents and embraces the principles that it was founded on, it will be good for the church. If this country continues in this opposition to the truth of God and darkness falls to this country's demise, it will be good for the church. Otherwise, that verse isn't true. The question that we can debate about is which one of those scenarios in the light of history and scripture is inevitable. But that can be debated. And we have to consider church history also. You know, with, with the, the election and things that are going on and the way the country is going and the media and the culture, uh, we have to consider in history, when did the church shine its brightest? When it got what it wanted or when it got what it didn't want? When, when did the gospel spread most effectively? When the church got what it wanted or when it got what it didn't want? I prefer getting what I want. But all things do work together for good. Uh, and Sunday school, I got to tell one Sunday school story the, to kind of uh, illustrate this. You, there's two kids, and they're both living in two different lands. One kid's living in the land of soft fluffies. And soft fluffies are these little creatures that are really fluffy, and they're cute. And they come up to you, and they rub against you, and you can pet them, and they purr, and they just make you feel good. And then the other kid is living in the land of biters. And these biters are these little creatures with sharp teeth that come out and bite your ankles. And you can't escape them. 
And I asked the kids, you know, which land would you rather live in, the land of soft fluffies or the land of biters? And you have to be out of your mind to want to live in the land of biters. I much prefer the land of soft fluffies. Uh, but, you know, I asked the kids, which one of these kids prays the most? The one who lives in the land of biters. Which one of them is closer to God? The one that lives in the land of biters. So which one is stronger? The one who lives in the land of biters. You know, I, I prefer soft fluffies, but it seems like there's a lot of biters coming down the road here. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is mandatory reading for the times that we're living in, uh, especially today. And they continued to pray. They said, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. That's our post-election prayer. You know, not that there's a recount and Trump lives or lives. Count <laughs> Trump lives. Yeah, we hope he lives. Not that, you know, he wins. Not that, you know, things change and go, you know, we, things ch change back into the land of soft fluffies. But our prayer is that with all boldness we may speak his word. Uh, there's an article in the last Calvary Chapel magazine that to me is like news bigger than the election, bigger than anything that's happened. Uh, it's an uh, article about uh, Calvary Chapel in California. I think it's Chino Hills, California. They had a baptism and a thousand people got baptized. Uh, people who were just standing on the cliffs, just watching, were coming down to be baptized when they heard the message. Uh, the pastor said, this is what the pastor said, we're seeing 100 to 200 people accept the Lord weekly. 700 teens showed up for service for a teen group. 138 confessions of faith just among the youth. And he said, this is happening every week. You know, we need to pray that this spreads. This is the hope. This is what we're praying for, a revival that the Spirit of God would be poured out and pierce the darkness and bring people to Christ. An outpouring of God's Spirit, you know, and we need help doing this. There are, there are Christians who are evangelists. They are just bold, and they will share the gospel with everybody, and they're just bold in it. I'm not. I need help big time. And this is what we need to pray for, that we may speak the word of God boldly. So let's pray for that. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we just thank you for your sovereignty, that you are in control, that all things do work for the good for those who you have called, and you have called every one of us. We are in you, Lord, and we thank you for that. Help us to keep focused on the good in Christ, on the one who is good. And Lord, we do pray in these times, Lord, we pray for an outpouring of your spirit on this generation that hasn't heard your word. All they've been taught is what the world says, that the Bible isn't true. We pray for an outpouring of your spirit upon them, that you would open their eyes 
and grab their hearts and call to them, Lord, and that they would go to you, Lord, we pray. Lord, fill us with your spirit, that with boldness that we would speak your word for the people around us, Lord, for the people we see at work and our neighbors and our family. We pray for that power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray, Lord, that it would start with us. We thank you, Lord, and praise you, and uh, just pray for this week, just to be with you, Lord, to stay with you, to be found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.